Hello and welcome to the Football Psychology Show. My name is John Nasori and this week I'm joined as ever by my co-host Luke Chiverton. Luke, hello. Morning, John. Hi, Luke. Regular guest, Dr. Misa Jervis. Good morning. And making his Football Psychology Show debut, we've got Wickham's first team coach, Matt Bloomfield. Matt, hi. Good morning. How are you doing? Really well, thanks. So just before we start, a quick shout out to our partners, Sporting Bounce and the Set Pieces. So Sporting Bounce is the online directory for sports performance. It's managed by former guest, Professor Mark Jones. And the Set Pieces is a website which is part of the Guardian's sports network and home to some first-rate opinion on all things football. Luke, we're going to kick off this week's show, I think, by talking about off-the-pitch problems yeah, we are. So obviously the big news in the last week has been the announcement of the sanctions being brought to bear on Chelsea's owner and I guess by extension onto the club itself. Now, listeners will have their own views on the justifications for that, but clearly the people at the centre of it are the players and the non-playing staff who are undoubtedly having to deal with a fairly unprecedented amount of uncertainty. And we thought it'd be interesting to consider what effect that's going to be having on the club as a whole. Now, Matt, we'll come to you first. I mean, given that you went through a period of financial uncertainty as a player at Wickham back in 2012, uh, just before the Supporters Trust took over, what effect does something like that have on everyone involved with the club? I actually think it can have quite a a big impact. Um, From my experience, any uncertainty... Um, or financial issues or anything that distracts from the football that's going on off the pitch can have a detrimental impact on the pitch. If I, if I think back to 2012, um, at that point, I'd suffered a, a, a really bad injury that kept me out for a year. So my contract was really, really incentivized on, on bonuses. Um, and at that point, the club had, had very little money and we got a really big draw away at, at Scunthorpe. Um, who were top of the league at the time. And, and for us, it was only a draw, but away from home, it was a big point. Only to be told after the game that we weren't going to receive our bonuses um, in our payday on the on the Monday. And for me, at that point, on a you know really low basic wage, but heavily incentivised, you know, that that had a massive impact on my life, you know, paying my mortgage, supporting, supporting my wife and um and all the rest of it. So that that's actually um is is my experience in it. Any any uncertainty that you have off the pitch, whether that be contract issues, financial stuff with regards to the club. Um, you know, there's, there's a fine line between you need uncertainty and uncertainty in your life to be um, in a growth state, in, in my opinion, um, and too much of one or the other is, is detrimental. So too much of that uncertainty going on um, and all the discussions off the pitch at, at Chelsea or, or Derby at the moment, we can see how impact. That's in my opinion, Thomas Tuchel is actually doing an incredible job at the moment, just keeping... Um, the players' minds on the football and, and picking up the results that he has, and it shows that his man management skills must be really, really, um, really high because he's he's still getting results with a, a group of players who must have so many question marks about what's going on with their football club. Yeah, that's that's interesting, Matt, because I think maybe some people would would say, oh well, they're really well paid. Yeah, Chelsea's level in particular. Why are they particularly worried about about the situation? Because ultimately they're financially secure, they're going to go on and find another club at, at, at some point. But but actually, we're, we're talking here about elite footballers that, you know, want to challenge themselves. Uh, and we've seen this kind of constantly on this show, want to challenge themselves each day, try and make the most of a career that has a very limited time span. So it, I, I suppose kind of it's not just about the, the financial side of things, is it? But there's a whole host of kind of challenges to, to kind of think about. Yeah, most certainly. I know they've got some high-profile players that are out of contract, so they'll be questioning their futures. Even from a human element, those players, their wives and children might be questioning, are they moving back to Spain? Are they going here, there or the other? You know, so they might be looking at alternatives, what their life is going to look like come the end of the season. So, you know, financial aspect is one thing. Those guys are secure for life, so that's not something that they're particularly worried about. But there's still the human element and the life element. They've still got um, life outside of football that they'll be considering and um, like I say, children and a wife will be asking questions, which is which is understandable. And, and where do their career ambitions lie as well? Because, you know, the elite separate themselves from from the good because they're driven and they want to achieve. So those guys will be questioning as much as anything. It'll be where does my next trophy come from? Where does that what does this club look like in the next three to five years? And am I, am I in the right place? And if I'm not, then then I might need to move on irrespective of what the money situation is. Amisha. Matt mentioned there the, the excellent job that Thomas Tuchel's doing. He's almost become this sort of quasi-spokesperson for the club as a whole. And 
and getting a lot of praise for how he's conducting himself. But what is the role of the management team and, and the psychs behind the scenes to, to help the players navigate the sort of uncertainty that Matt was describing? I mean, I think what Matt said is absolutely right. And, and, and let's not be naive and think it's only going to impact on the players because it's going to impact on everybody. Um, and it, in essence, it, it, it's now becoming a, a kind of organisation under threat, which creates um, increased feelings of uncertainty, maybe feelings of disempowerment, um, which can impact on kind of the, the, the relationships that people have in terms of the, the trust or, or feeling like there, there is no trust. And of course, it changes how you communicate with people and it changes the, your thinking and your, and your decision making. So all of, those, all of those kind of core elements of being in that state of threat is, is really challenging. And I think what, what, the, um, what the manager's done is he's managed to anchor people and he's managed to um, keep communication happening with his players as best he can. He's tried to kind of take, um, take as much of the uncertainty away from the players. And that's, that's really what the, um, the, the role, if you like, of the psychologist is, is in those times of uncertainty, it's about coming back to who you are as people. It's about resilience. It's about navigating through adversity. And this is, this is an adversity. And it's, it's how the players connect with each other during this time that can be really powerful and really important. Um, so clearly he's doing, he's doing an exceptional job under, under these very difficult circumstances. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Misha, that you raise about the connection, actually, uh, the connection aspect of this. So, so we had Professor Mark Jones on the pod uh, a few episodes ago, and he was talking about seeing motivation through kind of three different factors or three influencing factors. So autonomy, competence, and then connection. And I suppose you look at the first two, uh, you know, particularly in relation to, to Chelsea and Derby, you can imagine the kind of um, players potentially not kind of, you know, maybe d- doubting their competence, but certainly kind of, you know, the, the autonomy that they have now, Matt kind of mentioned the fact that, you know, they, they might have, l- there's uncertainty over the kind of power that they have over their contract situation. And then uh, for me, yeah, that, that connection point is, is absolutely critical, isn't it? I mean, I, I think it, as you were saying, Matt, you know, Thomas Tuchel seems to be doing a fantastic job in terms of making sure that 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 he's knitted knitted together or keeping that that squad together at a time of yeah of real jeopardy. I, I would suggest that you know I don't know the ins and the outs of it, but even at Derby County, Wayne Rooney seems to have really galvanised their squad. You know, they had um, the potential to to really have a, a terrible season on the pitch, but. Points deductions aside, they've actually they've actually achieved really well considering the financial restraints they've had on them and and what's been going on off the pitch. So it's almost he, I feel like from the outside it looks like he's used that as a positive, a little bit of a siege mentality. It's us against the world kind of thing, and he he seems to have galvanised the squad in that way, in that way and, and really dragged it all together. So um, I know one or two of the players there who speak highly of him, and and that seems to be what has happened. Um, so not only Thomas Tuchel, it, it looks like Wayne Rooney's done a great job at Derby as well, really trying to um, bring the squad together and, and feed off each other. And like I say, create that siege mentality, us against the world and, and gain strength and, and power and um, motivation from that. And is that a common tool that a management team would use then, Matt? I mean, I think you're right, because it does seem that in adversity, you can almost bring the group together and, and identify that there's almost a, a psychological advantage to be had potentially from something like that. Yeah, I mean, I've had friends in the game who've played at clubs who've had points deductions and they've actually had two tables, um, two league tables um, pinned up on the wall. There's the, the, you know, the real life of the deductions and actually this is where we would be if we, if we hadn't had the points deduction. So actually they, they refer to this one more often to gain confidence and gain belief within the squad that actually don't let the real life table um, distort your feeling about how we're doing. We're actually doing really well. If it wasn't for the points deduction, we'd be here. So actually galvanising and gaining confidence, gaining belief within the squad. And actually that allows them to, to drive themselves on. So um, that's just one example that I know from, from speaking to players over the years of, of one example of what people might do just to, to gain that camaraderie, gain that team spirit, gain that togetherness um, and actually use it as a, as a positive rather than a negative. 
how difficult is it to sustain that over a, a long term, Matt? I mean, I, I suppose Chelsea, uh, maybe to a lesser extent Derby, but Chelsea at the moment have a you know a window at least in which they, they might get some kind of resolution to this to, to, to this scenario. But if if that goes on for an extended period of time, how difficult is it to kind of maintain some of the togetherness that, that we've just talked about? It's a really good point, actually, because I think that does have a expiry date on it, that kind of mentality and that kind of thought process. You can use it for a limited period of time, but it might just take, I would say your resilience is broken down by what's going off the pitch. So whereas you might have one defeat and in a normal season, it, it wouldn't bother you. That might feel such a bigger, bigger deal um, if you're having so much else going on. So with the time period that Thomas Tuchel's got between now and the end of the season, I would say that he might be able to manage that situation Whereas Derby having it over a full season, you might see that one or two bad results actually has such a bigger impact on the mentality of the squad because their resilience has already been beaten um, over a number of weeks and months that actually it's the, it's the straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing. It's just one little thing can, can send the whole thing tumbling down. So it's, it's really tough um, off the pitch to deal with those, like I say, the year, the year that I experienced it, you know, we actually galvanised ourselves and we were really fighting for each other and the manager and it only took one little meeting after a game to tell us we didn't have our, our, our bonuses that we'd fought so hard for that actually had a real big impact on the mentality of the squad. And I think you have to be really mindful of the fact that those little things, that uh, those targets and those little things that people are working towards. And for us, obviously, a, a bonus was, was such a big deal because it was a, a large proportion of our income. And, and, and at Chelsea, it's, it's probably not so much, but... Um, all those little bits have to be thought about so in such deeper circumstance because of the impact that they can have on the wider squad. Amisha, that reminds me of something you said on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, I think, where you talked about checking the emotional barometer of the squad. I imagine that example that Matt gave there of a, a meeting where the players found out that they weren't going to be getting their performance bonuses, that sort of sets all the alarms off on the emotional barometer in a way. What's your response to something like that? Do you, do you as, a, as a sports psychologist, do you sort of kick into action at that point if you're supporting a squad? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about, um, it's about reminding people of a bigger picture in terms of the, you know, why, why are we here? What do we stand for? Who are we as people? And, and regardless of that, okay, how do, how do you want the world to see us as we navigate through this adversity? Because really, this is about who you are as people and who, who, who we, we being a collective squad are as people in terms of how we are connected to each other and, and what becomes important. You also have to, you have to allow a space where people can go, this is, this is really hard. This is really difficult. And that's all right as well, you know, because uncertainty as humans, we don't like uncertainty. We really don't. Um, even though we can kind of say, well, living as a footballer and Matt will attest to this, it's like, it's constant uncertainty, really. Um, you sort of move from uncertainty from one game to the next, but, but it's, um, it's really, and, and, and this will be down to the culture of the club the values of the club, the the values of the squad, the relationship the manager has with those players. Um, these are the times when they get really revealed and you can see who's who's actually got that being delivered in, in the everyday behaviours of, of, of the squad and who is it who's like, oh, yes, it's just a thing we talk about, but actually it's not, it, it's not really ever been tested in a way. And then when it is tested, it... it it falls apart. Matt, were there any, just picking on Misha's point there, were, were there any kind of players in particular that, that you played with that were kind of crucial in, in you know, making sure that, that that kind of positive spirit that, that you talked about earlier were, was, kind of, was, was kind of kept in, in place? Um, no, not really from the playing side. I would say that came from the management at that point. Um, the Gaffer and Dobbo here are first and foremost, incredible people and really supportive people. They find um, a real good balance between challenge and, and support uh, and as players and certainly in my time of playing for them and now coming on their coaching staff. That's been crucial in my development as a, as a person and as a, a, and as a player. And I would say that they strike that balance um, between them really, really well. And it's been a massive learning point for me. Um, but also... Um, Throughout the changing room, we had some characters, I guess, that had just been there and done it. 
um, had been through tough times. Um, you build up a resilience, as, as Misha said earlier on, football is a constant life of uncertainty, literally from hour to hour, day to day. It's, it's filled with uncertainty and it's part of the reason why you get up in the morning and, and challenge yourself and it's what keeps you alive and keeps that fire burning, if you like. But also um, it builds up a resilience over a number of years that when you have the younger players who are, are, are new to it and a little bit green, that it helps you through the tough times. Um, and when I was younger, I had some some really good older pros who helped me and you kind of feel that responsibility towards the younger players. So certainly as I got older, I felt that responsibility and, and enjoyed that responsibility to, you know, try and see when someone might be struggling a little bit and offer that, you know, sometimes it might be a bit of a shoulder and to cry on or an ear of support. And other times it might be, listen, that's not good enough. You, you need to do better kind of thing. And it's finding those times and being emotionally um, intelligent enough to notice when each one of those skills is needed. Mm. And Matt, does the fact that Wickham, you know, albeit a long time ago, but I guess you do have a lot of people at the club, as you mentioned, who've been there for a long time, um, that did go through that particular period of adversity, does that almost become sort of part of the identity of the club now? I mean, even though it was almost 10 years ago, is it, is it something that you're able to pass on to a a new group of players who weren't necessarily there during that particular period of instability, but you know they're still able to feed off of the resilience that the clubs had to show over the years. Yeah, I think it gave us skills and it and it taught us lessons that had we not you know gone through that period, we won't have we wouldn't have seen and wouldn't have learned. One some of my biggest lessons in my life and in my football career have been from perceived failures. Um, you know, near near relegations or or relegations the missed penalty at Wembley and the life lessons that taught me off the back of it, um, the financial hard times that we've had and the lessons that we we learned as a group off the back of that. And we retain that humility and that um, uh, that knowledge that we came through that um, to see the club sort of prosper and, and move on, if you like. But we still retain those core values and um, morals that we had at that point. And without that, we wouldn't be who we are and we wouldn't be able to do what we do and live our lives how we try to. Um, you know, we're not perfect. I'm sure there's mistakes and little learnings along the way, but essentially we can um, lean on those lessons that we learned then to know this is what it's like in tough times. And actually it allows us to appreciate what the club's kind of grown into now. Um, and if you lose sight of the fact of where you come from, you can't really truly appreciate um, where you're at and, and what you're looking to try and move on to either. Well, from one kind of culture club in, in Wickham to something kind of completely different. Um, we've got a, a situation in Tottenham I think is really, really interesting at the moment. So Antonio Conte's come in and basically at, at each press conference at the moment, it, it seems to be a little mini event in its in itself with kind of j- j- journalists frantically, psychologically analysing his every, every word. Uh, he's a really interesting guy, but I... I was really struck by what he's kind of been saying over the last over the last few weeks. He's been been calling out a medical department in kind of no uncertain terms, um, talking about the fact that it's taking too long for a skip to to return from injury. And, and he's also, you know, certainly kind of universally placing a bit of pressure on on the player. I I, I think as well to to come back from from injury. Um, talking about the fact that he's he's basically never seen a situation like this in. In his career, um, so I suppose, you know, Matt, to, to to you first, what kind of have you have you ever? That's my first question. Have you ever kind of faced that kind of situation in your career, or seen someone that's kind of been whose injury's been put under the spotlight in in that way before? Um, no, I, I, one reference and one experience I guess I've been through is is that year that I had out with an osteitis pubis issue. So there's nothing I could do to get back any quicker for to protect. The rest of my career and, and my life balance really I had to take that period of time to get myself right and other players have taken a year to get back from it as well and I knew I knew full well that the financial and implications and the um, the future implications it was going to have for my career and my life but there was nothing I could do about it at that point the club didn't have much money and I had um, there was issues with um, what was going to happen for my future and the fact that I'd been injured but in my mind, I just tried to give the best I possibly could for the, the club that was employing me. The fact that I got injured in the process, you know, I tried everything not to get injured and it's kind of part of life injuries. And the, the emotional toll and the, and the issues that that gave me at, at the point was, wasn't 
wasn't particularly enjoyable at all. Um, later in life, I guess I learned a lot from it and it, and it, and it kind of helped make me stronger, but um, maybe if I wasn't able to come through that, it could have, it could have given someone else a, a lot more, a lot more problems than, than maybe I, I, I encountered. So from that, it, it wasn't great. Injuries are a part of football. There's nothing you can, you can do about it. As long as a player is doing everything they can to get back, um, no one put any more pressure on me than myself to be fit to play football, uh, and no one ever put any more expectation on themselves than than me to to be ready as often as possible and be as fit as I possibly could, and that hence why I lived my life the way I did for so many years. Um, there's a fine line at times if you're if a manager says, you know, I kind of I need you. Can you get you get ready? If it's not a muscle injury and it's a kick and you can kind of get through it, it can kind of give you a bit of a lift, you know, a bit of a, oh, the manager leaves, needs me. It's just a bruise. You know, I take a couple of painkillers, I can get through it. And if it's a big, important game, you kind of almost gives you a little bit of a lift. But in my experience, you know, the medical staff, their first port of call is the player. Their medical um, and professional responsibility is to the player. And, and players want to play football. So, um to put any more pressure on people than what they've already got. You, you have to know the characters as well, I guess. Some people need to feel 100% to get out on the pitch. Other people can get out there at 70 80%. And, I, you know, any player who played professional football after the age of 30 knows that you never get above 80% anyway because that's the maximum your body allows you. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, like I say, players, in, in, in my experience, players are there to play football. Um, so putting any kind of public pressure on them to get back to play um, seems counterproductive in my mind. Yeah, I think I think I would agree in terms of the, you know, we're talking about kind of creating threat states. Well, you're you're then creating them for the medical staff. Um, The other thing is the psychological challenge of coming back is immense. It's it's much harder than the physical one. Um, And I know that most players experience some kind of fear of re-injury when they're coming back, when they're making that last bit of transition. And what happens is if you haven't dealt with that, if you haven't navigated through that, then muscle guarding happens. So people, they, they will protect the injury. It's, um, they have hypervigilance to where the injury was. So, you know, their mind is there to protect them. So their mind goes, alert, alarm, watch out, be careful, because that's the job of the mind. And if you haven't navigated through that, then what happens is that that becomes a distraction whilst you're playing. Your movement patterns can be altered because you're, you're, um, you're trying to protect yourself. And you then lay yourself open to more injury because you're moving in a different way. If muscle guarding happens or you might avoid certain elements, you know, you might be pulling out of tackles or you might be not playing in the same way that you you want to. And then and then the player get, has a risk of an, of an additional layer of critique, which is, well, how come he's not playing in the way that he was supposed? How come he's doing things differently? And and that is really problematic as well, because then there's more judgment, more evaluation. And yet, actually, the the manager has put him in this situation where psychologically he's not ready. I mean, I remember working with um, a young player eight years ago who, who had an ACL at 12, really young. Um, but the physios had signed him off and everyone was like, yep, he's good to go. And, and I went, no, because he still had lots and lots of fear of re-injury. So until we had dealt with that anxiety, until we'd done the psychology work, he he should he's not ready to go back, um, and I guess that's you know that's part of the work that I do with with long term injured players at, at Wickham. It's just you you have to you have to ensure that that all of those different psychological um, issues, which everybody is going to experience, because that is what the mind does. The mind is there to protect you, but you have to prepare the body for what's going to show up. You know, because your mind is just going to go alert, alarm, watch out, be careful. If you've been out and Matt probably, you know, when you were, you were out for a long time, when you start to come back, your mind goes, whoa, be careful. Yeah, yeah I, I was I was waiting. For, I was I didn't want to cut in, but it, it's a really good point you make, Michelle. The amount of times that, um, you know, after my I had a couple of I did my ACL at 24, then I had the osteitis pubis issue at 28. 
the amount of training sessions I I've gone through over those over those times where all it was in my mind was to try and get off the pitch at the end of the session without any kind of injury because mm. before I really truly kind of learned about myself and and what I stood for and my values I I used to you know suffer with worrying about outside influence and outside critique um you know and there was you know I had a few messages and bits and pieces about being injured and the pressure from the club about you know not being available to play and being out you know all these different bits and pieces and at that point football psychology wasn't really a thing and we didn't really have access to it so it was a case of navigating it myself which probably made it a whole lot tougher than it could have been mm. um and, and there was multiple training sessions I can remember over the years where you know it's like I've got to get through this I need to get off the training pitch in one piece so to speak and and that was my main motivation my performance level came secondary because without being fit your performance wasn't even possible so it's like I've got to get through this and you end up tensing up and and, and you end up feeling another muscle or, or something else that's totally unrelated to your previous issue so you, you're, you're totally right and to be free of mind like I was able to be later on in my career my injury my injury apart from the concussions my injuries bodily wise muscle wise were few and far between because I was able to be free and in, in myself um, and free of mind and free of body and and, um, you know, I, I truly believe that as a consequence of that, then I suffered less injuries. What was it in particular in your career, Matt, that sort of got you to that mental state that you described there then in terms of being free of body, free of mind? You know, was it the advent or your first involvement with sports psychology and what you were doing or, or were there other things? Yeah, I think it was um, probably a, like many things in life. It was a, it was a few things. Um, one was my, my interactions yep. with Misha when she first started getting involved in the first team at, at Wickham Wanderers and the sessions I had with Misha. It was a self-learning journey, if that's not too cliche. Um, listening, reading, trying to be better, trying to learn. Um, the resilience that a football career gives you over a, a, a number of years and the... Um, and the, uh, the trials and tribulations that you go through and the resilience that you build off the back of it. And just having a, an experience and a self-awareness um, that, um, you know, if, and, and this is something I've learned from Misha, um, if, as long as I live my life to my values and my morals, what kind of becomes of that is, is almost secondary. Um, I used to live um, in a results-based mindset so often that, you know, if things went wrong, you know, I beat myself up and be my own biggest critic where actually I got to the point where I was able to know that as long as I was doing everything possible within my power to achieve a result, um, the result has to, it's out of my, you know, there's a referee, there's 11 other players, there's a crowd, there's a pitch, there's wind, there's a ball, there's a net, there's all kinds of other issues that come into it. So as long as I was doing my maximum and I could stand and um, I did a podcast a, a while ago with Danny Cowley at Portsmouth who, who we're coming against tomorrow. And he had a great saying that you either look in the mirror or you look out the window, um, you know, and, and the best people and the best players look in the mirror. And I knew as long as I could look in the mirror every day, um, then, then I was comfortable with that. that that's so interesting, Matt. And I, it, it, I suppose it throws up another question as well, or another issue, which is that I suppose on the one hand, you've got elite clubs with, you know, unparalleled resources at their disposal or unprecedented resources at their disposal. And yet you, you kind of look at certainly some of them and think that despite all of that money that's available to potentially spend on the kind of psychological support that, you know, would that would drive that kind of drive that kind of behaviour. Actually, Misha thing as you said a few weeks ago, essentially they're they're kind of fear-based threat-based organizations aren't they there's there's again not not every maybe not every kind of elite club but certainly you can think of examples where culturally they they seem a bit bit bereft basically um and i suppose yeah how, how do you kind of change that because the we've kind of talked about it a little bit indirectly the pressure's on isn't it you know if you're antonio conte yeah, for example, you, you basically got to qualify for the Champions League this season. Um, potentially, you're out of a job in in the summer. Potentially, walks in in the summer. So, so when do you get time to kind of try and develop that kind of culture? I think that I think the pressure is on at every stage of the football ladder. Do you know, I think I think let's not just let's not just think that you know the manager at Tottenham is under more 
more pressure. It's it's the same regardless. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's as important the the outcomes in League One for the people in League One, the people around it, as it is for um, people in in the Premier League. Um, I think it's 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 really important that that culture is actually worked at. You know, it's this assumption that oh, it's just going to sort of magically organically happen. Well, it, it doesn't. You know, and and also the if people are in and out and in and out, well, how can you cement a culture? You know, unless you are um, the club and you go, this is our culture. And you make sure that the person coming in is actually going to be able to fit in with that culture, you know. But when you've got kind of um, quick turnover all the time, it, it's 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 difficult to kind of cement. At Wickham, culture is not an accident. <laughs> it happens by design. It happens by having development days. It happens by doing things in a particular way. And, and it's interesting, you know, I... I often ask some of the players that come in, you know, one of the first things they'll say is, have you ever worked with a sports psychologist? And they might be coming in from bigger clubs and they'll go, oh yeah, I think there's one in an office somewhere, you know, and, and it's like, they might have a resource, but how, how is that person actually integrated? What does that actually look like? And, and again, and, you know, speak to Matt about this is like, when I'm working I'm just kind of there, you know, I'm, I'm on the gym floor. I'm just hanging out. I'm, I'm having those conversations because I also know that for men in particular, you know, choreographed conversations in offices at, at oh, 9.25, it's your turn, don't work. You know, they don't work at all because it's, um, it's too intimidating. It's difficult. It's like, oh, I'm going to have to talk about tricky stuff you know, and actually people don't necessarily want to do that. So it, it's if you have a situation where, yes, we have the psychologist, but they're nowhere to be seen. They're in an office somewhere. Oh, yes. And I was talking to a player and he's like, yeah, I think we were supposed to go and knock on their door. I'm like, well, did you? He's like, no. Um, so how, how? And but, but that also requires an element of trust because it's like, what does the does the manager want the psychologist in and around the place, or do they actually quite like them over there in the office? What's the culture? People, you know, have sort of in in scenarios where managers get terrified of me talking to a player. I mean, I no idea what they think I'm going to be doing, but um, it's it's that fear, you know. It's like, oh, you, you, you can't you can't do you can't do this. And it's like, Matt, you're smiling, but, you know, we kind of live that. Yeah, I think from my point of view, there's just a couple of points that we should make to pick up on. Culture is something that's spoken a lot about um, and it's quite um, big at the moment. But from a a football management point point of view, and and I'm on a a diploma at the moment in football management, and I was there the other day and, and, and one of the managers there was saying that, it's easy to talk about, but it's really hard to implement in terms of you're judged on results. So when you get a, when you first step into a job, culture's way down the list of, of priorities because if you unless you pick up results in the first you know couple of months, even um, doesn't matter about the culture because you're not there anymore to see it. So it's almost like you have a list of priorities, and and culture is only something you can cultivate um, and, and use over a period of time. And as we've seen in football, that that period of time that managers are getting is becoming less and less. So actually, to implement a culture um, is becoming harder and harder because there's just not the time element, the amount of transfer windows you might need to recruit the the people to fit your culture um, and and implement that. Because it's something you live every day. It's not just something you can write on a mission statement and and everything's okay. It's something you know, it's the minimum you require of people and it's what you don't accept every day as much of what, what you do expect. Um, it's what you don't accept. So it takes a, a period of time to, to sort of do it. And also the other point that Misha makes about, you know, men and their feelings and what they're willing and not willing to talk about. Um, it, she's exactly right. It's those discussions over a glass of water. It's those discussions over lunch and someone's stretching in a gym. Um, I was also fortunate that, 
one of my real good friends started training as a mindset coach and it's slightly different to a sports psychologist. I'm not comparing the two, but you know, we used to go out for, for Nando's and just have a chat. And, and so there's all these different resources that if you want to, you can kind of tap into. And it's, and it's also, it's the responsibility of the club. It's the responsibility of the player themselves to be self-aware enough to want to um, embrace that, that, that kind of journey for want of a better word, embrace that process because, you know, some people are more open to it than others. Some people truly believe in it. Some people don't believe in it one little bit. And you get a lot of people in between who can be can be swayed. So it's about finding the right process that um, works for each individual. And that's where Misha's right. It's those little individual conversations at different periods, walking off a training pitch, having two minutes mm. or having an hour in an office because someone needs, needs your time. It, it, mm. it works in so many different ways. That leads us quite nicely on to the final topic for today's show. Now, we speak to a lot of sports psychologists on this podcast. You know, we're lucky enough to have Misha on regularly. And, and obviously that means we have a lot of people advocating the benefits of psychology in a football setting, not just in terms of the, the well-being of players and individuals, but, but also the performance enhancement perspective. Now, Matt, clearly you're also an advocate of the benefits that this brings, as you've alluded to uh, with some of the things you've said already. But as a former player, you know, what, what, what benefits did you get from embracing sports psychology? Yeah, in, in my mind, my best football's always been when I've been happy, um, when I've been comfortable, when I've been free, when I've been um, all of those things, um, whilst coupled with the motivation of... Um, um, trying to achieve something because that's you know we all play football because we want to win um, I hate losing anything in life so th- there's got to be that element of it too it's not just a complete support network where we're all happy we go in and, and have a nice chat and go home it's 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 far from that um, we're all here to win that's why we, we do what we do is why I drive so many miles and spend time away from my family because I want to win um, so as long as I'm I'm comfortable I'm in a I'm in a good place my well-being and my my I'm good off the pitch and I'm being challenged enough on the pitch to go and achieve, then that's when you achieve your best results. Um, a comfort zone is not good for anybody, um, certainly not footballers, um, but neither is is being too uncertain and being in too much threat and, and not being happy and not having your, your ducks aligned all off the pitch either. So it's about finding that happy medium of support and, and, and challenge um, and with a good staff and a good backroom staff um, all working together in harmony, that's when I think you achieve your best results on the pitch. Um, any achievement we've had here over the years has been because of, of that. There's been good support. There's been a good network of emotional and well-being support. But there's also been that challenge and the carrot dangled of, of how you perform a good plan, strategy, you know, so many different facets that go into actually achieving on a football pitch. And some of it is down to chance, as I I alluded to earlier on. But um, yeah, for me, my best football was always when I was, I felt valued. Um, I felt that I was in a good place personally. I felt that I had something to achieve, something to strive for. Um, And as a result of all those things, put, put all those ingredients together, I felt that I was a valued teammate, a valued captain a valued friend a valued um, husband father all of those things and eventually you become the best you can possibly be and I'm not trying to claim I'm perfect I'm far from perfect I'm just trying to say that's just what worked seemed to work for me over the years yeah yeah and, and I, I think yeah we've talked about it uh, on you know numerous different occasions Misha I think there are some some encouraging signs that that kind of openness to the benefits of psychological support is you know is kind of making its way through kind of various levels of you know English European football but um, you know there are still there are still Premier League clubs without dedicated performance psychologists uh, top Premier League clubs without dedicated performance psychologists as as well Uh, you know if you look at kind of academy level below kind of category one there's still there's still no mandate for, for clubs to employ performance psychologists uh, at what point do you think we're going to get to a position where the profession is um kind of recognized within football in the way that for example sports science has kind of become now a relatively established part of a, a club setup well i mean it's interesting in the e triple p that the only person 
who doesn't have to have an official qualification to do the job as the sports psychologist. I mean, let's let's just start there. You know, the physios have to be chartered. The coaches have to have B licenses, A licenses. But apparently anyone can do what I do um, and they don't have to be qualified and they don't have to have training, which is really, which is really, um, again, it's devaluing what we do. You know, it's like we're still trying to go, yes, hello, I can help. Actually, I can. It, it might be useful um, to have me and. You know, I've been doing this a long time and I'm, I'm bored of this now. I'm really bored. <laughs> um, I remember Matt and I, we had a little chuckle when, you know, there was all of that big hoo-ha about Man United actually getting a sports psychologist. And, and we kind of went, what? They haven't had, I mean, like, what? <laughs> Only now? It's ridiculous. So, of, of course, those things are, are Im- important. Um, but the, the other thing is, and you're kind of talking about Matt and his transition, you know. So, and it's also whilst you, I talk a lot about the work I do with players, you know, Matt Matt was a player. He was also a general. So in in Wickham, so those kind of leadership skills, those understanding about it's it's a different kind of role. And then now he's become a coach, and and I still work with Matt every day and and it's it's in a different way because there are different things that he is he's doing his job is different but there are still we we still work together and you have to have that kind of flexibility in terms of actually recognizing that 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 coaches need things in terms of understanding that performance psychology bit because it's 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 about the way that they communicate with the players can have a huge difference on whether a message lands or how it impacts on the performance and 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 it can become a, a, a different kind of role, really. And Matt, you're transitioning to becoming a coach, having been a player with your kind of outlook and having had your experiences, which I guess is different to that, perhaps, of the older generation of football coaches. Everything that you've learned in your career that you're bringing into coaching now, that must be representative of the, the kind of changing of the guard that's going to help sports psychology establish itself more in football, because I guess you get it, for want of a better term, and therefore the profession doesn't have to keep re-establishing its credibility. I would say so because I mean my generation of of, of coaches are now it's just coming out of playing have played in a in a period of time where sports psychology has been sort of more and more prevalent as the years and more and more um, seen um, as the years have gone on. So we're coming out, you know, my generation are coming out of the dressing room and into the the coach's office, and it's it's a part of the norm for us, um, if you like. Um, and so I would see that there's being a, a transitional period. In, in the outlook upon sports psychology within football. Um, and also the next generation of players are, are different from my generation. If you think about the technological advances of phones and um, how we lead meetings, how we try and get information into the players, how we try and um, just converse with them on a, on a daily basis, getting information into the boys is completely different now than, than when I started my career. And it makes me you know feel like I was part of, of something the years gone by. So it, it, it's forever changing and I just think you need to be open-minded enough to to be um, willing to embrace, retain your core values and, and, and morals as a person and, and being open enough to embrace how the game moves on because I've always been one that's not taken too kindly to, to footballers and ex-footballers who always thought it was better in their day and always wants to take times back to 20, 30 years ago. Life moves on. Um, generations moves on we've all just lived through two years of a completely different period than any of us ever expected to deal with um, and the challenges that that's thrown upon us and 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 there's been many sort of lessons to learn from that period of time really about the true value of communication and um, the strength of um, those connections you have with people because when they were taken away um, you know life was was a lot tougher and, and not nearly as fun so there's loads that we can take forward from that. And like I say, the, the next generation of players have just, you know, social media and, and the way they've been fed information coming through academies and school is completely different from, from my day. So if I was to be shut off from that, I only see that being a limiting factor in, in what I want to go and achieve in my personal and professional life. So you have to be open to these things. I, th- I think it's interesting, actually, with, with Wickham that you've got, 
you've got an extrovert in, in Gareth Ainsworth who is is really is really open to to, to you know supports supports Misha in, in in the work that that she does because quite often one of the one of the objections that that's raised one of one of the issues that's raised in terms of maybe a club not adopting or not not having a, a performance psychologist on board is that well actually that's that's something the manager can do you know the, the manager sees himself as the the, the lead psychologist but you know he, it, it, I think it's it, it's encouraging that you've got someone like Gareth who, who kind of potentially kind of could could play up to that to that role who's quite willing to say well actually you know that, that I'm not the expert in in that arena you know I, I we I do need support and the, the players do need support from a from professionals though I, you know, I think probably important to say that um you know there are some examples of of of, of kind of good practice at the moment oh totally yeah no I was not trying to you know the gaffer here is um you know it, it is, is a perfect example of someone who's been willing to embrace um the sports psychology sports science um the medical side he he totally entrusts in his staff to give him the right information and make the right decisions um, to help him achieve. And he has trust in everyone around him or he trusts everyone around him as well. That That is reciprocal. So um, hence, you'd like to think that's been a, a major contributing factor in, in the success that he's achieved over 10 years and 500 games at this club, which can't be underestimated. I like what you were describing there, Matt, around open-mindedness which which does seem to be a really important factor here I mean whenever I hear you guys describe Wickham it always sounds to me like you know a classic example of a learning organization where everybody's thinking there's another way for me to develop here there's something else I can do to expand my horizon or improve my performance somehow um, it reminds me a lot of the interview we we did with Bruno De Michaelis, who was a psychologist that worked with AC Milan during the 80s and 90s, ultimately uh, you know, a really successful period in their history. And one of the things he observed when he was, when he was talking to us is that it was the very best players in the squad who, who came to him first, and, and they were the ones saying, what can you do from, for me? How can you help me improve? Basically, what's the art of the possible here? And it does make you realise that if, you know, if the very best players think like that, then the optimal working environment needs to think like that too. Uh, I, I don't know if you'd agree with that, Misha. Yeah, I, I would. And actually, you know, Matt is one of those players because actually I worked with Matt um, away from Wickham before I was actually, you know, part of Wickham. And he was someone who was, um, you know, who had already a very long standing career. Um, and it was about how do I, how do I do the next bit? because the next bit looks different. And actually the changes um, that he had to work through and understand and actually understand that um, the bit that he could expand more than anything else was his mind and understand how his mind could help him as a player. And and the, the older you get as a player, the more critical that actually does become. So whilst his body maybe didn't learn new things his mind certainly did which then enabled him to play in a different way um, and actually um, help those players around him as well which was absolutely crucial and kind of defining moment in the playoffs I remember Matt you know we did a lot of work before the playoffs and um, it was it was only psychological in, in, in that sense, wasn't it? You know, those, those moments that you, you were able to create. Um, and, and Matt is, in, is an exceptional person in terms of his desire to keep learning and keep moving and keep, you know, and, and of course he's bringing all of this as, as, as he transitions into, into being a coach as well. Yeah, I'd just like to say thank Yeah, Misha, the help that you gave me... I don't think it was any coincidence that the best years of my career was actually in my 30s and actually my career on the pitch um, in terms of the level I played at and the, the level of the club was it actually got better and better and virtually until the day I retired. Um, and that was through a desire to... I, ne- I, I didn't want to retire and um, not feel content with what I, what I did. So it was a constant desire to achieve and improve, not even achieve, I think improve, um, and be the best I could possibly be, um, whether that was going to speak to Dobbo about technical elements, speaking to the gaffer about tactical elements, speaking to Misha about psychological elements, um, speaking to one of my good friends about mindset elements, speaking to the physios about 
what better I could. So it's just that constant um, need for improvement and desire for improvement. And also the, ex- the acceptance that I could never achieve perfection. I think the problem in my 20s was that I was striving perf- for perfection. Um, and it was only with that acceptance that perfection didn't exist that I was able to achieve excellence. If that hopefully makes some kind of sense. Makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> yeah. And it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, Matt. Uh, and I I mean, just to kind of end, end today's episode, we look, we look forward to, to, to the rest rest of the season. You've, you're Wickham are in, in, a, in a really strong position going into kind of the, 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 the final furlong of, of this campaign. What kind of, role will will psychology play over the course of the the, the next the next few games i mean i was reading over the, the course of this week that i think wickham has scored is it something like 12 12 goals after the 80th minute uh, over the course of of this season and I, I i guess that's kind of one points to kind of the the mentality within the squad to some extent yeah so psychology this part of the season is um you know your, your fitness is 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 there over the, the course of the last nine months um, a lot of the tactical work you can refine, but um, a lot of your tactical work, again, is ingrained in the team and in the squad because of the amount of training sessions we've had. Um, the psychological element to the, the business end of the season is, is where it's at. Um, how you um, review the games with the boys, how you prepare for the next games with the lads, how you set up that, the balance between that support and challenge um, and, and all the other bits that of the mentality of your players, how your your the makeup of your team and the resilience of the individual characters that make up the basis or the spine of your team, um, all those bits are, are huge at this time of the season. And and even just thinking about it, I'm filled with excitement and um, anticipation <laughs> of what's to come. So um, yeah, let's hope it it plays itself out. We'll we'll certainly won't leave you know we won't leave a stone unturned. We'll give it everything we've got, and um, we look forward to yeah embracing the challenge. Well, Matt, the fact that you describe it as excitement rather than fear means that you're already set up to do the right things. Yes. Hopefully for the rest of the season. Challenge state. We're in a challenge state. Fingers crossed for, for, for the remainder of the season. Matt, thanks so much for, for, for taking the time to, to have a chat with us. And yeah, best of luck over the course of the next few games. Misha, thanks as, as always. And, uh, and Luke, Look forward to, to seeing you in a couple of weeks when we'll be we'll be back. Um, thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do um, leave a review on your your podcast platform of choice. As, as I mentioned, we'll be back in in a fortnight. So until then, take care. <laughs>